So welcome to podcast seven of the year, a podcast taking 12 remarkable stories about 12 remarkable people from 12 months that changed the world. Each story is about an event from 100 years ago, and this month's podcast is about missed opportunities. This is a theme that weaves in and out of many of the episodes because my view is, in case this hasn't been apparent to date, is that there was 100 years ago an opportunity to create a fairer and a safer world. The rhetoric to achieve this was flying around. Self-determination, democracy, rule of law, a league of nations to rationally deal with all conflicts in a peaceful way, a peace to end all wars. However, in reality, many of the decisions arrived at tended to exacerbate tensions, thwart aspirations and create new resentments. The leading winning powers of Britain, America and France were often high-handed, vindictive, racist, imperialistic and expansionist when it came to the details of implementing democracy and self-determination for all. It wasn't only with enemies that they were high-handed and short-sighted. As we will see in a later episode, they betrayed their Arab allies who fought alongside them against the Turks. I think that this betrayal is one of the ones that should be most regretted in our times as a more democratic and liberal approach to that region 100 years ago could have prevented or significantly reduced a lot of the political instability that has gone on in the region ever since. Anyway, that's for a later episode. In this episode, we deal with how the leaders of the Paris Peace Conference dealt with the problem of their ally, Russia, which had descended into a brutal civil war after the Bolsheviks had seized power in November 1917. Podcast 7, the year, April 1919, Bullet and the Bolsheviks. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Vladimir Lenin. Alan Dulles delighted in power. He hid this under his studdedly intellectual and gentlemanly sophistication, but make no mistake, he loved power. He relished the power of a woman falling for him. He reveled in the power over his superiors that came from knowing something they didn't. The plethora of languages that existed amongst the positively tangled web that was Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Where most Americans floundered, smelling of the nervousness that comes from understanding nothing of what is being said around you, Dulles could breeze through in his quiet, unobtrusive way. And this linguistic supremacy had the added bonus of seduction. America was the savior America was the land of riches and opportunity. And in him, ladies had their very own American, and have them he did. With his impeccable discretion, only Dulles and the ladies knew of this. But right now, today, Dulles was exhilarating in a level of power that was even more intoxicating. He would be sure to celebrate tonight. For today, Alan, along with his friend Nicholson, had drawn up the borders of a dozen new countries, not bad for a 25-year-old determining the future of 60 million people. Before the inevitable carnal celebration of the coming night, he would take as much, or even more pleasure, in writing to his older brother, John Foster. His older brother was, even in Alan's first memories of him, when John was eight years old, the most monumentally arrogant and austere of men, as a boy, as a teenager, and now as a young man, 
John had never seemed to exhibit even a momentary doubt that he was the most intelligent person on the planet and was destined to be great and destined to rule. He had always looked out for Alan, at school, at university, and while Alan loved his older brother, he writhed and squirmed under the deference his domineering older sibling wrung out of him through sheer force of personality. <laughs> well, while his highness of a sibling was involved in meaningless writing up of this or that commercial deal, he, Alan, was drawing up the very lines of the world, and no doubt having a lot more fun into the bargain. The only slight cloud on his horizon was the bumptious bullet. Bullet was neither his superior nor his inferior, but by dint of his Yale background and the three additional years he had lived on this planet, he always subtly tried to pull rank on Alan and never missed an opportunity to undermine him. He had wangled out of Colonel House the commission to go to Bern for the second international, a mission that should have gone to Dulles. This was the stomping ground on which Dulles had mapped out his future. In the swirling fog of neutral Switzerland's most radicalised and international city, Dulles had set up the intricate network across the landscape of Eastern European and Balkan politics, which formed the basis of what had become the most effective spy information gathering network in Europe. His strategy had put America on an equal footing with the French and British barely three years after the US became involved in this distant continent. Bern was his town, and yet House, by dint of classing Dulles as indispensable, was letting the idiot Bullet loose on it. Bullet was a communist apologist. Dulles could only assume that he was so, to add a dash of rebellion to his otherwise mapped out life. Men from families like the ones that Dulles and Bullet came from were expected to, and themselves expected, to form part of the ruling establishment that would steadily steer America forward. Dulles could only guess that fraternising with the unwashed sons of petty bourgeois who formed the core of the revolutionaries, foaming with indignation at the ruling classes, gave Bullet some frisson of the exotic. The truth was, there was something that nagged at Dulles from his time in Bern. It wasn't a screw-up. Alan didn't screw up. Well, not yet. That was ahead of him. At this point in time, the nigger was Vladimir Ilovich Lenin. 18 months previously, on a Friday night when he was still in the US consulate in Bern, Dulles received a phone call. The man on the other end of the phone insisted that he needed to meet with Dulles that night. Dulles had a prior engagement to play tennis with a young blonde with impeccable Swiss finishing whom he had first met and rather hankered after back in Princeton, and now he had a tennis date with her that he hoped would develop. So he had been rather short with this Vladimir Ilovich and told him whatever it was, it would have to wait till Monday morning when the office reopened. Well, of course it didn't wait. Over the weekend, Vladimir Ilovich was transported by the Germans across their lands, and by Monday morning he was in St. Petersburg, deposited there by the Germans because they had a hunch he would cause some trouble. Maybe if they had known just how much trouble, then even the Prussian militarists bent on winning the war would have thought twice about it. Within six months of his arrival, Lenin was in control of much of Russia and signing a peace treaty with Germany, and he had held on to power ever since, forming this dark cloud looming on the consciousness of all and sundry at the Paris Peace Conference. Dulles couldn't help but speculate that if he had in fact taken that meeting with Lenin, whether the course of history could have been altered. 
Dallas felt that if only House would send him to Ben instead of the bumptious bullet, then at least maybe he could have some control of rectifying the situation that he, in some small part, had caused. This presentiment would only expand with time as history magnified the repercussions of Lenin's uprising. Bullet arrived back from Bern, predictably fully buttered up by the communists, swaggering around as if he were some high-level diplomatic emissary of the US government, and made it known to all and sundry that he intended to be the man to resolve the Russian situation. Dulles couldn't understand what dirt Bullet held on house, or what old boy Link, because the normally astutely shrewd house seemed to be taking this diplomatic dilettante seriously. Dallas looked on incredulous as Bullet was given permission to reach out to the Bolsheviks while Dallas had to stay put in Paris. Dallas went to his former boss, Ralph Van Diemen, head of US intelligence in Paris and therefore de facto the world, to lobby that he should be included on the mission, to make sure that Bullet didn't do anything stupid. Van Diemen was sanguine about the Bullet mission. Let him have his rope, Alan. We all have plenty of time to hang him with it while he is away. Van Diemen pointed out that Bullet would have to be away from Paris for at least a month, which, in a city where decisions on the future of the world were being made daily, where careers were made and unmade over the course of a luncheon, was a diplomatic lifetime to be away from the action. He consoled the ambitious young man. You will have plenty of time, Alan. Dulles went away in two minds. Was that what he really wanted? to sabotage Bullet's mission just so that he could ensure his position as House's closest advisor? What if Bullet succeeded in normalising relations with Lenin? More than jockeying for position, Dulles wanted to be in the thick of the action. Dulles watched on as Bullet, puffed up with newfound pomposity, did the rounds of the Allies in preparation for his trip. He became tight with Philip Kerr, Lloyd George's private secretary, who infuriatingly added some direction and substance to Bullet, drawing up an eloquent and concise eight-point list of demands. The experience of previous attempts to negotiate with the Bolsheviks would suggest that these points were unattainable. Maybe that was what the British strategy was, to take advantage of this young man's ambition to test the waters. After all, it was too risky for any high-ranking diplomat to be seen conversing with communists. Bullet was at a low enough level that if he came back with failure, all could wash their hands of him. And if he came back with something of substance, then they could commandeer it for themselves. Bullet invited along his champagne drinking companions to accompany him, and more sensibly, Stevens, a man who had worked in the Red Cross in Russia and as a journalist during the revolution, a man who had actually met most of the top brass of Lenin's cabal. The group made its way to Moscow via Sweden, Dulles had no spies inside Red Russia. As of yet, it remained a black box to him. So it wasn't until a telegram arrived three weeks later from Sweden that he had any news of the party. In these three weeks, Dulles had plenty of parties of his own to attend to. The business of determining the fate of Eastern Europe and the Balkans waited for no man. The big news had been the rise of a communist government in Hungary. This created a sense of near hysteria in the right-wing press. The Reds are on the march. Who will be next? Berlin was a hotbed of political violence, with the workers taking control of a section of the city. Dulles knew from his sources that it was localised, and he doubted that the German people were ready to go from Prussian militarism to Russian communism in a single step.
The crimson tide entering Hungary meant that all of Hungary's neighbours, who had in any case been pouring over the carcass of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, now were trying to chew off even bigger chunks, particularly Romania. Queen Marie had barely set foot on the train back from Paris when her army was on the march. He wouldn't have been surprised if she'd ordered it the moment she'd walked out from her second meeting with President Wilson, just to spite him. The President had lectured her as if she was one of his less promising undergraduate students, and the Queen had not looked pleased at all. Dulles had also been dealing with complaints from the Ukrainians that the British military mission to Poland was taking it upon itself to become a combatant in the Polish-Ukrainian war. It turned out to revolve around some crazed, one-eyed, one-armed British captain, but on further investigation it seemed the Ukrainians had opened fire on him and he was not the kind of man to turn the other cheek. What with the Bolsheviks in Budapest, a trigger-happy, one-eyed British diplomat in Polish-Ukrainian Galicia, the Queen of Romania's visit and His Highness of a brother descending on him, John Foster predictably had come on holiday to Paris because he was so peeved that he was missing out on the biggest diplomatic shindig since the Congress of Vienna, Allen had virtually forgotten about the bullet mission to Moscow until the telegram arrived. Of course, he and Van Diemen saw it first. Allen was at once impressed and envious. The Champagne Socialists seemed to have wrung a wide range of concessions out of the Bolsheviks, the like of which no one else had even come close to. He voiced his begrudging respect to Van Diemen. Van Diemen poured water on this spark of respect. You cannot deal with a regime whose very ideology is to overthrow you, your country and everything it stands for. They made a plan. Alan was sitting at the bar in Maxime's restaurant, the favoured haunt of the young swells. Conveniently, it had a trapdoor at the back that connected it to the Hotel Crillion, where the US delegation was based. Van Diemen had padlocked this several times, but not even the head of US intelligence could keep this door closed. Did you miss us, Dulles? Champagne, waiter. Bullet was a bullion and lost no time in crying to Alan of his success as a diplomat. Alan quietly congratulated him, all the while eyeing up a delicious accompaniment Bullet had brought in with him. Alan was sure that this was the lady who would be taking through the trapdoor tonight. In the following days, Bullet's mood went from regal to righteous to resigned. Try as he might, he could not get a meeting with President Wilson, nor even as a substitute, Colonel House, who had sent him on the assignment in the first place. It was relayed to him that he had overstepped his brief. His had been a fact-finding mission only. Indignant and humiliated, Bullitt went to the British and he managed to get an audience with Lloyd George. He figured this was going to be the way to get Wilson back on board. After all, it was Lloyd George's secretary who had drafted the terms, terms which he had achieved. He was in for a rude shock. The white-haired Welshman beckoned to him to take a seat. He then picked up the Daily Mail and read to him an article about his secret mission. Lloyd George stated that someone in the US delegation had leaked the contents of his mission to the UK right-wing press and Lloyd George had to disassociate himself with the initiative entirely. He looked on with a kindly smile to the deflated young man in front of him. One thing you will learn in politics, my boy, is that it is often not the other side you have to worry about. After all, at least you know they are against you. Afterward. A week after his meeting with Lloyd George, 
Bullitt resigned from the State Department in disgust at the way he'd been treated and went to the Riviera for a rest, after which he returned to Washington. In September, he was able, at the congressional hearings on the Treaty of Versailles, to wreak his revenge on Wilson by speaking out against the treaty, which failed to pass through Congress. Bullitt became very friendly with the Roosevelts, and when Roosevelt became president, he was made America's first ambassador to the Soviet Union. He quickly became disillusioned with the Soviet regime and within a year of his posting was an ardent anti-communist, a position he stuck to until the end of his life. However, while US ambassador, he threw an infamous party immortalised as the spring ball of the full moon in Bolkakov's majestic novel, The Master and Margarita. The decorations included a forest of 10 young birch trees in the chandelier room, a dining room table covered with finished tulips, a lawn made of chicory grown on wet felt, an aviary made from fishnets filled with pheasants, parakeets and 100 zebra finches on loan from the Moscow Zoo, and a menagerie of several mountain goats, a dozen white roosters and a baby bear. The festivities lasted until the next morning, the bear became drunk on champagne given to him by one of the guests, and in the early morning, the zebra finches escaped from the aviary. After this, he was made ambassador to France, a prestigious posting, and he spoke daily with President Roosevelt. However, he became embroiled in a State Department feud, which led to him falling out of favour with Roosevelt, who put him forward for a governorship, but then told the Democrats to cut his throat. He never returned to politics after losing this election. Ralph Van Diemen, the father of American intelligence, head of US intelligence in Paris in 1919, wrote a note to President Wilson saying that if he recognised Bolshevik Russia, then it would have the right to join the League of Nations, and if it was a member, then neither France or Britain would join up. So if he wanted his League of Nations to be born, then he mustn't take any steps to recognise Russia. Wilson sacrificed many of his principles and aims so as to get the League of Nations set up, Paradoxically, Bullitt was one of the witnesses who testified against Wilson in Congress, which led to the US not signing up to his beloved League of Nations. Alan Dulles went on to set up and run the CIA. In later life, he reflected that Bullitt's agreement with Lenin achieved the most far-reaching concessions that anyone would ever get out of the communists. The first chance, if indeed it was a chance, to start talking with the communist leaders was lost. When Alan Dulles wrote these words, he seems to have been forgetting that the first chance had been squandered by him back in 1917, the day before Lenin got on a train for the Petrograd station to embark on his revolutionary aims in Russia. No Western leader ever managed to get the concessions negotiated at the beginning of 1919 by Bullitt until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989. At the time, Lenin was struggling in the Civil War and could have actually been willing at that point in time to sacrifice much territory and to sign up to many points of international law so as to secure his control over the central part of Russia. Conclusion. I decided to tell the story of the Paris Peace Conference's approach to the Bolsheviks through William Bullitt and Alan Dulles. They were both young and connected and privileged young men who were destined to have key roles in America at a time when the US rose to its undisputed world preeminence and both of their careers would be tied in one way or another to communist Russia. 
Bullet famously flipped from being a sympathizer to a hardliner after seeing the horrors of Stalinist Russia up close. Alan Dulles, as head of the CIA during the height of the Cold War, was the secret front line in the espionage tussle between Russia and America. There was a time when Alan was head of the CIA, his older brother John Foster was Secretary of State, and his younger sister Eleanor was head of the Berlin desk. As a family, they virtually had a stranglehold on American foreign policy at a very key time in the Cold War. And they would meet for cocktails, just the three of them, around the swimming pool once a week. I always wanted to be a fly on the wall at that family gathering. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't left a review, please do. I had a flurry of five-star reviews after the first couple of podcasts, and I would love to have some more added to that. So if you are enjoying the year, please take a moment to rate it on iTunes to help increase its visibility and introduce it to more people. See you next time and have a good Easter.